Welcome to the Iceman Kicking Podcast. It's the show with cold questions and even colder guests. I am elated today because I have someone who is a professional head coach, special teams expert, and has been called one of the best special teams minds in football by his brother, the head coach of the San Peters, Dave Dickinson. We have Saskatchewan Rough Riders head coach, Craig Dickinson. Coach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Coach. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, a little bit about Coach Dickinson. He's coached professional football since 2000 and has won two great cups with the Calgary Stampeders and the Edmonton Eskimos. He spent time with the Raiders and Chargers and even some time at his alma mater, Montana. Coach, we were just talking about uh, you're the pride of Great Falls, Montana, but also your college career. Tell me a little bit about your time at Montana with the Grizzlies and in the Big Sky. You betcha. Well, uh, like most young men, I went to Montana thinking I was going to be a superstar and, and I would be the best player there. And I quickly realized, Brett, when I got there that there was a lot, a lot of good football players there and I was going to have to expand my my skill set to try to stay on the team. So I went there thinking I could play maybe receiver a little bit, punt and kick. When I got there, I realized I wasn't fast enough to be a receiver. I wasn't strong enough to be the punter, but I focused on kicking because I was accurate and uh, and and a little bit self-taught. So it was something I enjoyed doing. So I ended up playing there for about three years and uh, got into coaching as a student student assistant there when I was done playing. And thankfully, the head coach's son was the special teams coordinator. So uh, he needed an assistant and I was able to help out. His name was Bruce Reed. Bruce has been a mentor of mine and a guy that I've looked up to my whole career. And I was able to help Bruce out on special teams. And then that got my foot in the door coaching and, and uh, you know, and here I am 25 years later. That's pretty awesome. That I actually did. I knew that you played wide receiver. I did not know the kicking part. What was your, your kicking strength? Were you a power guy? Were you a, no, a I was, guy? I was, I was more accurate. And the re- reality was even at receiver, I was just an average receiver. Um, but I liked football, you know, and I just didn't, didn't feel like I wanted to specialize only in, as a kicker or a punter in college. Cause I enjoyed, I enjoyed blocking. I enjoyed tackling. I enjoyed part, you know, the part of football that the contact part, and I just missed that. So I wanted to stay in that. Um, but eventually the coaches told me, you know, listen here, you're wasted everybody's time playing receiver. Let's put you at kicker and give you a chance there. And so. I was fairly accurate. Uh, didn't have a huge leg, um, but uh, I was fairly accurate. I worked hard at it and, and kicked a little bit, but eventually they recruited somebody better than me. And uh, I spent my last year there mainly watching somebody else kick. So that's that's part of what prompted me to get into coaching. I realized I loved the game. I wanted to stay involved. And I realized that, that coaching was going to be the way for me to do it. Sure, sure. I mean, that sounds – Kind of similar to me, too. I love the contact of football, and I want to be involved somehow, some way. And my parents are like, hey, bud, way too small. You're going to have to be kicking <laughs> or punting or something like that. So that's kind of how I – and you know what's interesting, too, Coach? We always start off our section – I had to ask about that – but a heavy hitter section, all right? So it's brought to you by the Kicker's Bible. Uh, oh. your, your, your heavy hitters question of the day is, what was more gratifying, beating your brother – when you were younger in any game or beating him at this level coaching, because I know personally me and my brother are very competitive 
And I used to get so furious. I cry and, and want to beat him up. And just like you, he was always the better athlete. He always got the best of me. So what was the better feeling? Well, I think honestly, the better feeling was beating him as an adult. And that would have been a year ago. We beat Calgary in the playoffs and because it's, it's spread, it's shared. It's not just you versus him. It's your team. So, uh, and we felt like we kind of owed him one a little bit. Um, so that was probably more gratifying, uh, beat, beating him in a, in a playoff game. Did you razz him a little bit? Did you give him a little? No, not really, but it, it bothered him. I could tell you that. Um, he got the better of me this year. We had a down year this year, so we got to get back and, and get rolling next year. Hopefully I can get on the, the correct end of the, the rivalry once again this year. Sure. Well, you know, I just from seeing interviews and stuff and not knowing personally, but it seems like you guys have a really good relationship and an understanding of, you know, a mutual respect for what each other does. And I think that's freaking so cool. You guys are both head coaches in one of the biggest professional football leagues. Yeah, I think so. He does a really good job in Calgary. And, you know, he's got a little different background than me. He was more he, he played a lot longer and was a really successful player. But you know, we both come from the same family tree. And as, as you get older, you realize you, you, you're your father's son. And so we all, you know, we're both very similar in a lot of ways. Respect, respect. That's how I got to be with my brother. Um, yeah. He's not, he's not in coaching or anything. He's a physical therapist. I like to joke around with my players and say, you guys, I'm, I'm messing around with you out here. My brother's a doctor. Okay. So what are, what are we doing <laughs> out here? Um, but we have a lot of fun, mutual respect. So, Hey, cool. I, we also like doing a rapid fire section that I normally do at the end, but I want to hit this with you. Now there's a lot of unique rules in CFL, especially with special teams. I want you to tell me, I'm going to give you a couple of rules. Okay. And you can correct me if they're wrong, but I'm going to tell you some rules. You're going to tell me one of your favorite rules or examples that's different from American football and give me an example of, of your favorite time of that ha happening. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay. So one of the rules that's different from American football is on punt return, you have to give the returner five yards of space or it's a 15-yard penalty and you cannot fair catch the ball, correct? That's correct. Okay. Another one is after a field goal, the other team can take the ball at the 35, no kickoff return. Is that correct? That's correct. Any punt that goes out of bounds outside the 20-yard line is penalized. Also correct. Yep. Okay, what about last touching on any fumble? Uh, on field goal punt, if the, uh, if the specialist kicks the ball over the line of scrimmage and the cover guy is behind the kicker, he can bat the ball out of bounds for recovery. That's correct. Or he can recover and advance it. Recover and advance it, which you cannot do in American football. No, you can't do that down south. And if a field goal or punt is not brought out of the end zone, it is a single point. That's also correct. That's correct. Okay, so tell me, do you have a favorite out of those? Or the, you know that you? Yeah, I do. I do. I I think my favorite is the last touch because um, it really turns into a free for all when the ball's on the ground. And uh, I know a game last uh, couple of years ago, Winnipeg was playing somebody, and Justin Medlock, who's former UCLA Bruin kicker, if you remember him, lefty. Mm. He also was punting for Winnipeg and he punted the football. And uh, because he's the punter, he can recover his own kick and he can gain possession. So I guess it's a combination of the onside player, which is anybody behind the punter, including the punter himself, can recover the ball and gain possession and then last touch. So Medlock saw that it was a short punt and the returner was back there 
you know, kind of taking his time like a lot of Americans do, right? Because you're taught to get away from the ball. Um, and he was slow getting on it. So Medlock came sprinting down the field. And at the last second, you could, he could see the returner was going for the football. So he dove and he was able to tap it out of bounds. It was near the sideline and they, they gained possession. So that's the situation. I show that clip to our team and talk about teaching moments and coachable things. That's one that's, that's really, really a, a, a fun one to see. Cause first of all, you'll find punters that are super aggressive up here. Like they, they, they're, they're going after every short punt. So you have to, on the punt return team, actually assign somebody to block the punter because he may recover his own short punt, so to speak, and gain possession. So that's a, that's, those are kind of a combination of those two rules. I, I enjoy watching that. That is really cool. I mean, do you use an off ball safety guy to normally take care of that? that well, the tricky part, the tricky part is, you got to have somebody assigned to the punter. So if you're, if you're trying to run a block or a return, you're playing with one man short um, and you can lose sight of him. Cause let's be honest, there's a lot of traffic in front of you. Um, so what you got to do, what we try to do at least in Saskatchewan is really educate our returner on if the ball's short, you got to be aggressive and go get it. You can't let it sit there very long because the punter's trying to come. Sure. Absolutely. And so same thing with that returner. You're just talking about American returners. Am I right in saying that a good amount of them come from American football teams because they're athletic or something like that? So yeah. you have to educate them <clears throat> right on the no fair catch rule, right? Oh, yeah. And I'd say every team in the CFL has an American returner just because the one thing, and this is me going to bat for the CFL, the CFL, the return game is still pretty pretty big up here and it's a big influencer in fact our guy this year guy by the name of mario alford played at west virginia he had four four return touchdowns and he ended up being special teams player of the year up here but every year you're going to have two or three returns for touchdowns by by your punt returner and uh because there's so much space and they have to allow them to catch the football there's no fair catching so they have to give five yards so they return you know, I know down in the States, you'll play games where you'll punt maybe three times and three times there's fair catches or it hits and, and it's down. Up here, we average about seven to nine punts a game and every single one of them's returned because you can't kick it out of bounds. So the returner in Canada can make a big difference. And so what you'll see is teams will invest in a good returner. They'll go down to the States and they'll find a good one that I believe, you know, probably skill wise 10 years ago would be in the NFL, but with the, the way the NFL has gone and, and then basically trying to reduce the amount of returns in the, in the, in the kicking game, I think you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of those guys come up, come up North. So the returners in Canada are very good. And, uh, and a good one is, is like gold because he can flip the field for you and he can actually help you win a lot of games. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that speaks to obviously your guys' success with special teams and, and, it's really fun as a special teams guy. I mean, I really got into the CFL watching you guys this year and um, that special teams, you know, how explosive the return game is and all the different rules gets me fired up. It's exciting to watch. So fill me in a little bit on the rules for Americans, right? And you're an American too. I'm not trying to say you're not, but you have 12 players on the field. You have yep. three downs and there's a limit to how many Americans you can have on a team, correct? What's that like? <clears throat> yes, basically you got about half American and half Canadian players. And then you got a, 
a couple of global players thrown in too. And the global is a relatively new thing that we're, we're trying to expand the game to other places besides Canada and the U.S. So our global this past year was, was Corey Vedvik, played at Marshall University, played in the NFL for about five years, strong-legged kicker, punter. And, uh, but he's from originally he's from Norway. So, so he can, he's considered a global. Our other global was a linebacker that played at UCLA. And I think, uh, boy, I don't even know where he's from originally, but he's, he's born in Europe. And, uh, and so that's, that gives us your global players. So there's really, the globals are very good players as well. So, um, but you have to play with essentially seven Canadian starters and there's uh, of all those players. So, 12 on each side there's 24 possible starters seven of them seven of them got to be canadian and uh, and then you can just mix and match however you want so most of the special teams players are, are going to be your american linebackers or your extra defensive end on american and then a lot of canadian players and uh and the rules the rules are such it's got a little bit of a rugby background brett where uh that's why you get the the last touch rule. That's why you get the guys behind the kick and recover the ball. So there's some rugby roots to it. The main thing you'll see as an American is a bigger field. It's 65 yards wide and compared to 53 and a longer field. It's 110 yards from goal line to goal line. So the midfield stripes to 55 instead of the 50. How does that change? Field, field goal posts are in the front of the end zone and there's yeah. 20 yards behind yeah, yeah. That you see those big end zones. That's what I always think about. And all oh, yeah. And if you miss, here's the other thing. I remember because I coached in the states for about ten years. Uh, if you missed a field goal down there, it was like, okay, so be it. You know, they get the ball where we kicked it. But uh, in our league, if you miss a field goal, they got Janarian Grant back there who played at Rutgers, or they got Mari Alford back there who played at West Virginia, and he's catching that thing with a bunch of little guys blocking for him, and you're trying to cover. 65 yards with your offensive lineman and that's a scary proposition <laughs> so field goal kickers are at a bigger i mean it's more important to have an accurate kicker right because if he misses you're screwed yeah very important and, and the kickers you know it's like everything though the kickers are better than they ever were i mean back when i first came to the cfl back in 2002 if your kicker was averaging 80 he was he was he was doing a good job now I think the lowest in the league is about 84. So the guys up here are getting better, just like every everywhere, right? Kickers are better. Punters are better. There's more of an emphasis on snapping and holding than there used to be. Uh, you just see, you're just seeing a lot, a lot higher level of execution than you used to. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Cause that's one of the questions I normally ask, you know, is what has changed in the last five or 10 years, but you kind of hit on that, you know, with that, that answer, it's become more magnified. I guess I'd say those. Yeah. Those and, those. and your kickers better know how to tackle because they're going to be asked to tackle. I mean, I think most, I mean, what, there's so much scoring in our league and we play 18 games. There'll be 50. You'll try 50 field goals in a year. And if you make 90% of them, you know, you've made 45. So that now you've got five that you missed and that kicker better be in a position to uh, either help on a tackle or make the tackle himself. Cause that ball's coming out. Jeez. Hey, that's a good thing. I always ask coaches too, coach. And I've seen you even in, in some YouTube videos, you're snapping the ball. You're getting some line drills in with your punter, which I think that's cool. You're working with the specialists. What do you do tackling wise? What do you like to work tackling wise 
with those kickers. It's got to be some sort of open field drill, right? Do you have anything specific? Yeah, to do? yeah we do. We do a drill called alley tackle, which that's a drill I learned from Coach Phil Lolly. He's an, an Alabama guy, coached at Auburn, and uh, really good dude, by the way. And it's just basically open field tackling, making sure you have good leverage, getting your head across to the finish and running your feet. You know, we teach them the same tackling drills, Brett, that we teach everybody. And with an emphasis on wrapping up and an emphasis on really taking a good angle. Because I, I think, you know, um, when visiting with you, you know, last year at that special teams clinic, there's there's a real lack of, of emphasis, I think, these days on angles and taking the proper angles. And so we really work hard on pursuit angles. And then when we do get there, wrapping up with our arms because you see a lot of guys that'll you know throw their body in there but they don't bring their arms and uh, so we we do the same drills brett that we do with the linebackers with the kickers we we, we expect them to be able to get out there and make a play and tackle if they need to make them fold to the ball right and wrap up run their feet that's right we're gonna play they got 12 we want to make sure we're playing with 12 also i love that we got to get our kickers doing some more tackling doesn't what do you guys do with the relation to the sideline like do you do you tell them hey the sideline's your friend force them to the sideline or you tell them hey force them back into we 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 don't emphasize that a lot and that's something i'm going to look at in the offseason because the reality is when you do have them on the sideline you do know you got a 13th defender essentially um but for the most part we try to emphasize pursuit and tackling as if there's no one there and uh and we try to we use a term called set the new boundary where we try to make sure that we get get to that spot because what you'll what you'll see is kickers think they got the angle and our field's so wide they won't realize there's that much more space out there and the worst thing that can happen is if he never has to even cut back um, so that's that's something you know that's something I'm going to look at this off season at what point do you allow yourself as a cover player to realize okay that sideline is our thirteenth defender and now I got to just make sure that I, that I escort them out of bounds. And sometimes that's just a feel thing. Um, but that's something we can definitely work on for sure. But we generally, to answer your question, don't treat the sideline as the 13th. We basically say, make sure you set the new boundary, whatever that means. Sure. Force American side. I gotcha. So, okay. So kind of going back in your career and bouncing around a little bit and you spent time at Montana and Utah state and even with the chargers, what was your, adjustment that you had to make coming to the CFL? I mean, what was your background with the CFL? Did you know guys in the CFL and, and what did you have to learn? Well, my background was my brother, who's a year behind me in school. He was an outstanding football player. He played at the university of Montana. He was a quarterback, didn't get drafted in the NFL, didn't get into any camps. So he went to Canada and played in Canada for a while. And that was my first experience to the CFL was my brother actually playing up there. And then when things in San Diego didn't work out, I was there um, during Ryan Leaf's time, Flutie's time. Um, I ended up getting let go along with our whole staff. We got let go. I came back up to Canada. Ironically, my brother was down in the NFL at the time. He'd make the move. Um, but my biggest adjustment um, was the speed of the game. There's a lot of speed up there. I mean, in the NFL, you got a lot of speed as well, but it's usually with this is back in the 2000 now. It was usually with your skill guys. You still had the big, thick linebackers. They could run, but not, not like they can now. I mean, there's a different game back then. Quarterbacks were under center. 
So there was a, a different, the NFL looked different in 2000 than it does now. In fact, now I believe, Brett, it looks a lot like the CFL game and the college game where they're in shotgun the majority of the time with lots of RPOs and lots of quarterback runs um, and lots of stuff like that. So, but back then there was just, there was just the big thick dudes and, and it wasn't, um, wasn't the spread out game that you see now, but that was, so that was adjustment coming to Canada, the space and the speed, and then just the difference in terms of size matchups you'd have in the CFL, you'd have in the kicking game specifically, different sort of people on the front side of the play than you would on the back side because the field was so wide. For example, on kickoff return, I was always just a left side, right side guy. All right, here's our left guard, left tackle, left end. Uh, but in the CFL, we started using boundary guard, boundary tackle, boundary ends because they were to the kick side because they had to be bigger because you were seeing bigger guys coming front side. You didn't see the kickers spraying the ball around as much as you do in the NFL because the field was so big, teams would put it on a hash and try to pin you in. So that was one one of my biggest adjustments early on, Brett, was realizing, okay, I got to have different guys front side than I do backside. So there's a lot of, uh, how should I say, personnel knowledge you need to coach in the CFL. You don't just line up left side, right side, and have similar similar guys across the board. You got to have bigger linebacker, D-line types, front side, and more strong safeties, big receivers, backside that can run. Man, that's interesting. And some teams kind of get into that now. We, we do like a front side, back side, uh, you know, on our kickoff return too. And how does that affect you like in punt return? Do you have a lot of speed guys out there? I know you do. You, t- you told me you do field goal and field goal uh, cover with your – or field goal return, I guess. Yeah. You're uh, with the Rough Riders. Like, you know, what do you, does that affect you there too? Yeah, you got you know, you got to have smart dudes that can identify – you know, just like a defense, they have to identify strength. So they'll go strong left. So then our bigger guys will go to the left and our, our little, you know, smaller guys that can run will go to the right. Problem is if you're in the middle, now you got to identify, all right, who are the, their, who are the opponents kick side, front side guys, and who are their backside guys? And we try to send, you know, just like you guys do, we try to uh, design it on matchups, big guys on their big guys, speed guys on their speed guys, and then try to, and try to go from there. But you know, as as the rules have, have changed a little bit this last year, they moved our hashes in. So now teams are a little more left and right, because honestly, you're, it's not much of a difference kicking from the right hash right. It's and, and, and the other hash is only about seven yards away. So, you know, everything, everything flows and, and, and you've got to adjust and, and go with the times. But there's a lot of thinking in football. And I think one of the, you know, one of the stereotypes that we had growing up was that football players were big and dumb and that's just not the case anymore you got to be smart and you got to know what you're doing or else you probably won't last you won't won't, you won't make it into the pros because there's a lot of information and and you got to process it in a short amount of time 100 percent. yeah that's crazy that that there's so much that goes (laughs) as coaches but okay so in 05 you become the special teams coordinator with stan peters what was that experience like was it joy was it nervousness you know euphoria what were you feeling and, and what was your first thing when you became a coordinator i'm sure you had done a ton of special teams you had before but you know what was your first thought all right this is how i need to organize my units yeah that was it was good and the head coach was tom higgins uh he's a good dude he's still up here in canada played at north carolina state was a d lineman 
and a lot, like a lot of coaches in Canada, they, they started their career in the U S and, and, you know, migrated North, so to speak. Um, I was thrilled. It was something I always wanted to do. I've, I've always loved special teams and that's been a passion of mine is to coach it. And I don't think I'll ever get away from that because it's just what I love to do. Um, and I was, you know, I was a young guy still. And, uh, but I felt I was ready and I was, and we had good special teams from, from 2005 on. But the biggest thing I remember, Brad, it's kind of funny was my biggest nightmare was to have too many men on the field on a punt return. Like most of us, right? Oh God, I got too many guys on the field. And ironically, my very first game as a special teams coordinator, we got called for having 13 on the field. <laughs> and I, I swore we did not have 13 because I had a pretty good system for who goes in and who goes out. Because in our league, half your defense is punt return because we got small rosters. So it's not like you can get all 12 on the sideline and send them in at once. You got about six going in and then six coming out and six staying. So it's a little harder to, to organize. But I, I could have swore we only had 12. And, of course, uh, there's no challenge back then. This is 2005. Sure enough, I watched the film. We only had 12. And so <laughs> I don't know. I didn't even bring it up to the head coach. I just let him chew me out. And I just, I just, you know, I lived with it. But that's always been a concern of mine is having the wrong people in the game, as probably you can relate to as well. God, man, that would be so fr- – I know those I know those ass ribbon sessions, though. Sometimes you just got to get – you can take it. Huh? Yeah. You just got to take it sometimes. And the head coach let me have it. I didn't say a word. And then, you know, in film study, I think I did mention, hey, coach, but I think they screwed that up. You might want to look at it. But that was about all I said. <laughs> so how do and you – And they did. Yeah. How do you prevent that going forward? I mean, not – you guys only had 12, man. But, you know, going forward, how do you – keep make sure you know that's a tough yeah we have certain terms we use when we go in we want to signal when a different person it's just like anything else right you want to signal a different personnel group in the game because because it happens on offense and defense too so it's not enough to just send the guys in they got to be doing something with their hands to tell the people on the field that it's a different group Mm -hmm. and then you as a coach got to be be able to count by twos really fast. Um, I've had a hundred, I bet I've had a hundred times coaches tell me, Brad, I'll count for you from the box. And I'll be like, dude, you're going to be too late. I know how this works. Like he'll be telling me, cause here's what happens. They count too many guys and then they don't trust themselves. So they got to count it again. And if you count it a second time, the plays, the ball's coming up. Cause in our league play clock's 20 seconds. Wow. So literally you're on the ball and it's snapped like that so anyways i've had to i've had to call time out once when we had too many most of the time i'm able to get the wrong the, the correct guy out because i can see it quick sure. um, but i just work really hard in practice on signaling and working a lot of different personnel substitutions offense to defense to kicking game to offense to kicking game and so on and so forth do you organically put that in in practice or do you start off this hey we're gonna do punt period let's start with the offense on the field and then we'll run the punt team on there I usually do it on day three and day four. I, I, I want to spend the first two days really, really hammering out the game plan and what we're going to do and, and not worrying about substitution so much. But day three and then especially day four, Brad, it's all substitution. It's offenses on the field, second down, punt team go. Uh, defense, you're on the field. It's third down, which is kicking down in our game. Okay, we're going to leave the defense on the field. Returner comes in for the free safety. 
let's go. Um, I do a lot of that at the, at the end of the week. Man, that's a lot of that is exciting, man. Just being a special teams guy, it gets me fired up. Listening it's fun. That. It keeps you busy. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. And it's every, yeah, three downs, not four downs. So you always got to looking next, the, next play. The, the American guys will just be getting a glass of water and they'll be like, what we're punting again. <laughs> Cause if you don't get, if you don't get a first down on first or second down, it's punt team. Go. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it happens fast. So when you, when you do get that room, you know, and you're a, you're a young special teams guy and you're getting everything going, how do you create that excitement with your guys? I mean, I know it's different at the professional level. Like this is their job. They got to buy it, but still you got to create some excitement, some, you know, juice in that room. How do you, how do you get that going? Yeah, that's it. You know, that's a challenge. I think, I think the one thing I try to do is, as I try to change the voice. So it's not just me all the time in front of them. I try to bring in, um, I let other coaches address the team, especially early on. I let uh, former play. I try to bring in former players to talk to the team. You know, I do just like yeah, every other, other coach does. I try to find videos on, on the internet that are motivational and somehow have a relation to what we're doing that week. Uh, and then I try to put a lot of it on the players. I try to have uh, meetings where the players not are, they're not controlling the meeting, but they're having a lot of input. I'll have them stand up and, and ask them questions. Um, but that's, that's a challenge, you know, and we play, Brett, we play 18 games. So it's a lot of games. So when you're, you know, week 13 and you got six more, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to keep, keep their attention, keep them uh, excited about coming to work each day. But that's where, you know, that's where the love of football and, and just the professionalism has, has to kick in. You know, we tell our guys, there's a couple of things you got to be able to do here. You got to love football. You got to sprint to the football. And if you don't love football, the first point, those, those meetings get long and tedious um, because it just gets to be a grind. So I do the best I can to change the voice. I, I, I come from a teaching background, so I, I'll do things my old English teacher did in high school. I'll have a quote of the day up and then we'll talk about what does that mean to you and how does that relate to the game plan this week? And, and uh, ultimately it's on them to stay tuned in. I can't entertain them every day, but I do the best I can to keep their attention one way or the other most days. Yeah. I, I can already tell that from the, the teaching background, you know, that goes a long ways and I'm sure those guys really gravitate towards that. Um, being the head coach too, that a lot of special teams guys are always jonesing for more meeting time, right? They always want coach oh, yeah. to get five more minutes, five more minutes. Well, you're the head coach. So how much <laughs> meeting time do you guys get a day? Do you give them 15, 20, 25? Oh, we go, we, we get lots of time on, on, in our, on our staff. Cause you're right. I have, I'm, I'm a special teams coach by nature and, and by passion. So uh, we'll start the day and our schedule is different than your schedule. So we get them for about four and a half hours a day. And uh, we'll start the day with a team meeting and field goal, field goal defense. So that can mean nothing more than just, here's what we're doing this week on field goal defend. Here's our block. And here's uh, here's our return. Cause it is a, you have a return game as well on field goal D and then, uh, and then we'll just basically move on and go, go right into special teams, but special teams will get, probably about a half an hour each day. And if I need longer, I'll, I'll give them longer. And then we go into our offense defense and then we hit the field. So um, 
it's a, it's a short, you know, four and a half hours goes quick. But uh, if you do a good job, there's a lot of carryover from week to week. And we feel like um, we feel like the time on the field is the most valuable, especially early in the season. So we'll cut meetings a little bit just to get a little more practice time. Sure. Sure. No, that's, that's invaluable having all that time and, and getting with those guys. So, you know, and then some things, let's be honest, sometimes you have too much time. You know how coaches are. You give coaches an extra day and all of a sudden you got 15 different things in and, and you don't need them all. So that's one of my jobs too, is they, we don't want to give these guys too much time because these coaches are all mad scientists and they got 16,000 different schemes they want to run. And the reality is we need two or three good ones and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Simplify, huh? Simplify, yeah. amplify. That's what coach that's right. says. So you become the head coach <laughs> and you guys have instant success, you know, and you know, what, what do you attribute having that? I mean, you guys go to the West finals and you lost, but, having all that success in that first season, what made that team really special, you know, and stand out? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll share this story with you. Cause I, I think this, this story in a nutshell is why we were, we were successful in that first year. We started the year. We're, we're relatively unknown. I'm a first year head coach. We have a first year uh, starting quarterback. There's a lot of guys on the team that we don't know a lot about. And we started the year one and three. So we finished the year 13 and five. So um, something happened there between week four and week five. And what we did is we had a buy. And I think, I think what happened was, I think I got the trust of the team during that buy. And here's, here's why I say that, Brent. I told them at the very beginning of the year, I handed them out a season schedule. And this is, this is our schedule, win, lose, or draw from the time training camp started till the end of the year. And in that schedule, Brett was, a full seven days off for the bye week because I really believe that's important for guys to get away, go see their families, recharge, so to speak. And, uh, and I've worked on staffs where that bye week changes based on your previous game. Like if you win the game, the coaches is all happy and then, Oh yeah, we're going to give you the full seven days. But if you lose the game or you're struggling, all of a sudden the coach changes his mind and says, no, I want you back a day early or a couple days early. And I didn't do that. And I, I felt like I read a quote when uh, a long time ago that says trust is the most important thing to have on a team. And how you get trust is simple. You just do what you say and uh, and and mean what you say. And so when I told them, you know, you're going to get a full seven days off, win, lose or draw that week before. And then we did that. I think I think the players realize this this coaching staff they say what they mean and they mean what they say. And when they tell us something, they hold true to it. So I think we gained a lot of trust by doing that. We didn't necessarily get any better during the bye week, but we got rested. I think the players realized, Hey, these, these guys are going to, they're, they're, you know, they're worthy of our trust. And I think that made a big difference. We didn't play that much better week five, but good enough to get a win. And then we played a good enough, got a little better week six. And then we slowly got better as the year went on. But, I think that was a big reason, Brett, that we had so much success year one is the players really trusted the coaches and vice versa. Sure. And it matters too to what you're teaching, everything you say. They're going to gravitate towards that now. They're going to listen. They're going to buy into everything you say now after you buy. Well, I think so. And I think that's just, I mean, we play mind games too often. I think, 
I think being real with your team is the best way, even if it means you're being critical. I think if they realize this guy's authentic, this coaching staff is authentic, they care about us, but they're also going to push us hard. I think, I think that goes a long way. Sure. Sure. hundred percent. Well, that's awesome. Coach. That's a, that's a good way to get players to buy in. And then sometimes it's as simple as just keeping your work. Just doing what you say you're going to do, Brett. Right. That's right. Be about it. All right, cool. Well, this has been freaking awesome, Coach. And I always knew, you know, when I met you there in, uh, last year in, in February uh, with Coach Hawk, it was, you're a real authentic guy, and I, I appreciate you coming on. I got a little rapid fire, okay, at the end here. A little rapid okay, fire. Okay, let me have it, man. Where you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw situations at you, and you just give okay. me a few words on what that means to you or, or you know, a, give me an example of, of how this is applied in your life. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So talking about facing adversity. All right. And I'm sure you've had a long, illustrious career. You face some adversary adversity in your life, you know, uh, in, in your life and in coaching, what have you faced and, and how have you dealt with that? How has it helped you in your career? Well, adversity is the one constant. We're always, we're going to see it no matter who we are. And when you do face adversity, I think you circle the wagons a little bit. And by that, I mean, you just, you just make sure you focus on the things you can control and you try to block out the outside noise as best you can. Um, I think the, when you face adversity as a team, uh, the best thing you can do is to, is to realize, Hey, things aren't as bad as they seem. And you celebrate the small victories, whether it be one of your players got married or engaged, you make a big deal out of that. One of your players had a new baby because we're at, you know, we're dealing with grown men that have families and, and you, you start to, I think you can take a little pressure off them by, by making sure they're mindful that there's other things in the world besides our wins and losses. The world is a very complicated place and, and we all live in it. Um, and then I think you simplify things from a football standpoint, a scheme standpoint. If you're struggling, you do less, but you do less better. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully that's enough to get you through it. But um adversity is is the one constant we're going to face in our lives and the better you're able to handle adversity the more the more success you're going to have on the football field and the happier person you're going to be and i feel like they go hand in hand if your players are happy content feel like they're loved and and appreciated they're going to play better for you in the end there's no question yeah celebrate those small victories huh yeah what about uh mentally preparing your guys for a game do you get them excited? Do you get them riled up? I'm sure there's a time for both. Are you more of a chill guy? Like how do you mentally help your guys prepare for a game? Yeah. I try to put them in the game early in the week, start getting them in the mindset. I'll do something as simple as just go over what the weather's going to be like for the game. All right, fellas, it's supposed to be rainy on game day. This is in the game might be five days away, but I just try to get them, get them there mentally sooner um, rather than just have them show up at the ballpark and then say, Oh, what's it like? Um, that's one of the things I try to do. I try to get them thinking about what, what it's going to be like on game day, right, right away from the start of the week. And then I just really focus on preparation. You know, there's, there's an, I, I'm a big quote guy. Another great quote I like is that pressure is what you feel when you're not prepared. And, uh, we all have nerves and we all have that nervous energy, but if you're prepared, oftentimes that nervous energy is more of a, um anticipation you're excited you can't wait to get out there where if you're not prepared and we've all been in that situation too whether it be a 
an, a Spanish exam in high school or a football game where you're not sure you know, know it as well as you need to, all of a sudden it's a different nervous energy. So we really work hard on mentally just preparing as best we can. You know, we, we try to tell our players, hey, we may not win. Uh, we may get beat, but we're not ever going to get beat in the film room. We're not ever going to get beat in our preparation. And if we get beat by a team, then they're just the better team for the day, but they weren't more prepared than us. So that's one thing I really work hard on is the preparation and just the mindset of uh, that's the one thing we can control. So let's make sure we do a good job of it. And then when the game hits, let's, let's let it fly. Let it fly, baby. Well, that's something I was just going to ask you about too. You're already ahead of me, coach. You have any favorite proverbs or coachisms? You know, you mentioned you you like some quotes, or you you know, is there yeah. any books you like? I got what, a bunch got of them. Probably, probably the players think I have too many. Well, one of my favorite all time authors, he's John Wooden, uh, and a lot of these guys are young now and they don't really remember John Wooden. I don't even really remember John Wooden, but I remember his legacy at UCLA and the players he coached. You know, the Lou L. Sunders, You know. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, Bill Walton's. Um, a lot of these guys, you say, who's Lou Alcindor? And they have no idea who that is. Um, but he's a guy, he's a guy that I think just really got it. And he's a, he's a mentor of mine. He's got a million books out there. And I've read about seven of them. Um, another, another really good quote that I use all the time. I use this more with our staff. Is it a quote by a Chinese, uh, Chinese philosopher and it says a leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say we did it ourselves. And I think that's the goal I try to get our staff each week is let's lead them where we want to. Let's take them where we want to go. And then when it's all said and done, let's let's have the players saying we did it ourselves, feeling like they almost don't need us as coaches. I think that's when we've done our best work. So that's one of my favorites. I use that mainly with the staff. Sure. Like a servant leader, right. And making them feel yeah, that's like the idea. Take responsibility for everything. Yep. Yeah. Like the kid that, that's learning how to ice skate and you help them a little bit and they figure it out and they figure I did this myself and they didn't realize you had your hands on them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, I feel like that's a very CFL Canadian uh, uh -huh. example. Using the ice skating there. I love it. That's, that's right. Tit. So, Okay, one of the last ones here. In-game adjustments, I mean, special teams, there's so many adjustments, you know, as injuries and, you know, different schematics that they're throwing out there. And you don't get, you know, three plays over and over. You get one every so often. So how do you make in-game adjustments? Do you ask someone in the booth? You know, what are you doing on the sidelines with in-game adjustments? Yeah, those are tough. The, the one thing I will say is, is if you need to switch a matchup, like I'll do that once in a while. If I just feel a guy's getting just physically manhandled, I'll switch a matchup if I need to at times. Um, but most of my in-game adjustments, Brad, are, are minimal at, at best. Like I feel like you've got a whole week to put in a game plan. You better know what you're doing. Now, if it's not working, you have to have your – you're essentially your, your uh, everyday stuff where you got to, you have to have your, your work, no matter what plays where you go back to, this is going to be good, no matter what we see on the other side of the ball. And we have to go back to essentially our training camp stuff. Maybe it's your, your, your one word calls on offense that, you know, are good against whatever the defense is giving you. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just a basic front and cover package on defense that, you know, your guys have played, 
they're comfortable doing and you know that you're going to get at least high level execution from it um i don't do a ton of, of adjustments because i don't feel like um most of the time if it's brand new i've learned a lesson early in my career don't rep something in a game you've never practiced now you could have it on the board you could talk about it but if you haven't physically repped it in practice i don't call it in the game um i just been disappointed you can relate to this right right you know you know you got a good block and you know they block it a certain way so you're like okay we're going to make an adjustment to it but if you haven't repped that adjustment you're going to get a guy free but he's going to be late and so i just you know i've done it trust me i've done it you got to still try but most of the time my in-game adjustments are mainly personnel and if I have to, if I just feel like the plan is not working for, for one reason or another, I go back to the basics. I go back to those four or five things we did really well in training camp. And I call it just our base package. Hey, we're going back to our bread and butter and let's just play as hard as we can and go from there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Get back to the basics and the fundamentals and those guys will know what to do instinctively, huh? Cause you guys have done it. So that's, yeah, that's it. I mean, hopefully you don't have to do that too much because, I mean, the in-game adjustments are fun. It's it's the chess match, so to speak. But hopefully during the course of, of the week, you've been able to go over the adjustments you may or may make as part of your game plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, Coach, I, I appreciate you taking your time. I know you're a busy man. And, um, man, this has been one of my favorite episodes, just to hear your perspective being a head coach and a special teams guy. So, Thank you for coming on. Well, I appreciate you. Coach, appreciate you having me, and I, I look forward to seeing you at the special teams retreat this year, wherever that may be. We'll find it. We'll make a time and a place, and I'll be excited to watch the Riders. What can we expect from the Riders this next season? Well, you know, we got some new coaches. We made a few changes on staff, and uh, uh, we're going to have some new faces out there. The one thing in the CFL is, is change is the one constant, and, you know, with – one-year contracts and guys moving left and right. There's a lot of new faces each year. So I think you're going to see an exciting brand of football. We're going to, we're going to be a physical team and we're going to be good on special teams. That's what you're going to see. Dang right. You guys are going to kill on special teams. I can't wait to watch. <laughs> well, thanks again, coach, for coming on. Has been Coach Craig Dickinson of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders.